And uh, right now, it's my privilege, all week actually in, in, uh, in Australia, I've been, hey, thank you very much for your prayers while I was in Tasmania. That was amazing. Uh, we went to a church there that really needed some input. And I want to tell you, we had revival there. And uh, for the first time in a long time, they've had a heap of souls got saved this weekend. And the place is on fire. So God is awesome. And uh, hey, never underestimate the, the length and breadth of what we do as a church and what we're influencing in this world. And even now, right now in Singapore, um, just speaking to Hamish last night, they are fired up for today. And uh, we need to stay fired up, guys. So right now it's my honor. As I said, in Tasmania, I've been uh, fighting with Shane back and forth over the phone, trying to convince him to stay in New Zealand the most beautiful promised land you could ever get in that doesn't have lockdowns. And uh, so back and forward, back and forward, and there was a bit of resistance there. And Anyway, he finally flew home, and, and Pastor Jesse and I went out and farewelled him at the airport, caught a quick video clip of him before he went, and uh, you're about to hear that. But listen, the Word of God. I don't know about you, but this book is the foundational truth that'll keep you through every storm. That's why we can be so, so thankful because of God's Word. So I'm thinking this way. Incidentally, it's a real honor and a privilege to have Pastor Barry and Naomi from uh, Rama Church and all their, and a whole lot of their people and also people from Hamilton and, and whoever else here today. What an honor to have you guys in the house today. And uh, But listen, um, we want to go to the Word. And uh, Pastor Shane, as you know, is a man of the Word. And uh, I want you to grab your Bibles right now and I want you to stand up with me and we're going to introduce the Word of God this morning. Now, I know that he's going to... Shane has been a friend of this church for years. And I think we were the second church in New Zealand to actually acknowledge there's a call of God on this man and invite him in here. And uh, he is bringing you today. And I want you to grab it. I know he's not here in person, but I want you to believe by faith right now that there's going to be a supernatural impartation. Okay? Now, I've, I've already listened to some of the mess. I don't want to hear it all because it's otherwise, I don't, oh, mind you, it wouldn't hurt to hear it four or five times. If you're watching online today, you are in for a treat. This is a prophetic revelation, I believe, to the churches and to our church in specific. He's done this message specifically specifically for us, and I want you to grab a hold of what God's saying and speaking into your spirit. I believe we're in some of the greatest days you could ever be alive, where the church shines, even though this darkness covers the earth, the church shines in this hour. So I want you to get ready for a great word, and Father, I speak over this auditorium right now, and we declare over Pastor Shane as he brings this word via video today, that it would be powerful, that it would unlock hearts, that it would bring fruit that would be overwhelming in Jesus' name. And I pray that right now, God, the influence would go beyond these walls into our cities, our towns, our schools. And in Jesus' name right now, I declare over your life and over your spirit that God would ignite his fire in your life today through the word of God in Jesus' mighty name. Lord, we give you all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. Now, why don't you give Pastor Shane a huge hand clap and welcome as he comes and brings the word today. Thank you, Musicians. 
Well, hello, my Inspired Church family. Your friend Shane Willard here. First of all, I want to say I'm so sorry for not being able to be with you in person. I did everything I possibly could to work that out, but I was clearly told I had better get on the plane by Friday, and so I'm going to have to do that. But here's what we've done. I have recorded the message that I was going to do on Sunday, and I'm telling you, it's a prophetic word. It's a now word. If you're going to be a part of what God is going to be doing in the church going forward and be happy about it, we're going to have to get on board with what we're talking about today. I ask that you listen to it with an open heart and an open mind and, and allow the word to get into you and, and determine how we're going to build the church going forward. I hope Jesus gets bigger, the cross works better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures get bigger, not smaller for you today. Grace and peace, everybody. Okay, so let's get into this. Um, I want to start with a story. Um, now, I owe my friend Ben Staines, who is the pastor of a great church called Generosity Church in Wagga Wagga, New South Wales. They have, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, 13 campuses or something throughout rural New South Wales. And we were having a chat about the, the philosophy of ministry of Generosity Church, because it is amazing. And he told me this story and it just stuck. I want to share it with you. This is a story from the 1980s. And um, what happened was, is an American came to visit Australia for the first time. Now, the truth of it is, is that you know, Americans are enamored with Australian culture. And the Americans that I know who've never been to Australia, when they want to come to Australia, one of the first things they want to see is the outback. Now, this is largely due to the success of a character named Crocodile Dundee, right? And Crocodile Dundee was a famous movie, and so it sort of glorified the outback. But I can tell you, as someone who lives in Australia, you know what? Not, there's not that much to the outback. Seriously, if you fly to Mount Isa, you drive 10 miles out of town, there you have it. It's thousands of miles of that. And, and, and this particular American was um, just absolutely flabbergasted by the size of certain things. Like my, my pastor is an old um, cattleman, and his cattle property from when he was a teenager was 70 miles long by 30 miles wide. Now, I realize to us as Americans, that is like the state of Connecticut, right? As your own personal property. But that was his property in, in, in the outback. And actually, it, it wasn't the biggest property out there. It was in the top 15, I think, but it wasn't the biggest property out there. And, he, and here's the thing. They, they, they don't put fences around that whole property. Why? Because it takes a lot of money to build a fence around something that big. Ask Donald Trump how much it costs to build a wall like that. It's it just it's not something that, that is just easily done. And so this American tourist asked the farmer, man, how do you keep your cows from wandering away if you don't have a fence to keep them in? And of course, there are strategic fences along the way, but he said, look, you can't fence in an entire property like this. He said, so what you do, is you have a surveyor come in and you have them dig wells down the middle of your property and on strategic points in the property that provide a water source. And he said a cow will not vary too far from the water source because they know sort of inside that they'll die. And he said, son, if you got proper wells, you don't need all the fences. Now that'll preach. Which leads me to the book of Acts. The, the book of Acts and the Gospels, for that matter, were transitional books from a fence-based ministry to a well-based ministry. Uh, the, the Old Testament was largely a fence-based ministry. 
In the Old Testament, there were 613 fences. 613. Jesus had two fence posts. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Don't be people who write about the Bible. Be people who fulfill Scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. But that takes transition because there are people who profiteer and find a fence-based thing more easing to the soul and actually, quite frankly, more enriching. So when Jesus was taking on this fence-based thing and turning it into a well-based thing, there was some opposition to that, so much so that they had him killed by the Romans. And the book of Acts is the same. The book of Acts were the followers of Jesus who had a radical encounter with Christ and a radical encounter with the Holy Spirit. And, and actually, the book of Acts is quite a, a large book, but he, he, here's the book of Acts in, I don't know, 30 seconds. Ready? Group of people had a radical encounter with Christ, radical encounter with the Holy Spirit, and then they did amazing things. And then they got persecuted for doing the amazing things. And then they did amazing things. And then they got persecuted for doing the amazing things. And then they did more amazing things. And then they got persecuted for doing the amazing things. And then a guy named Stephen gets martyred under the authority of a guy named Saul. And then they did more amazing things and got persecuted. Then the guy named Saul gets converted and he starts doing amazing things and changes his name to Paul. And then he got persecuted for doing those amazing things. Why? Because when you are transitioning from one type of thing to another, the people who found comfort and peace and solace and enrichment from the old way are going to resist you when you're moving to the new way. What happens in the book of Acts and in the Gospels is there's far less concern about all the fences and much more concern about who's thirsty, who wants it, who's passionate about it. That, who, that, that what we find in the Gospels is that God loves people more than the rules and that we're called to fulfill Scripture instead of be right about it. And so with that, I want, want to look at a passage from Acts chapter 8. Now, Jesus told his followers that they would be his witnesses in, Judea, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. But we're already in Acts chapter 8, and they haven't went anywhere. They're still in Jerusalem, in Judea. But because of some great persecution, namely the martyring of a guy named Stephen, um, a guy named Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, ventures out into Samaria. And some amazing things start happening. So much so that people start offering him money for the power they were seeing. But then there's this amazing encounter in Acts chapter 8 um, with him and a guy called the Ethiopian eunuch. And I, I want to read this uh, passage. This is Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go to the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, this was a desert place. And he rose and went. Oh, oh by the way, uh, years, years ago, um, myself and uh, my friend Terry Kirk, um, we actually went to this place. And we saw uh, where this actually happened. A, 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 a historical guy named Arie uh, took us there. So I can actually visualize this uh, uh, very well. Um, this is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an, there was an Ethiopian eunuch. A court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. I have so many questions already. Like, why would a guy ride a horse from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship? Why out of the whole Bible is he, is he clutching a scroll from Isaiah? Of all things, why Isaiah? I've got questions. And the Spirit, and the Spirit said to Philip, now go over it to, and join him on the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he said, do you even understand what, what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I? 
unless someone guides me. In other words, I'm teachable here. I, I think I'm the sort, but I don't really know what all this is talking about. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to slaughter and like a lamb before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say these things? Is it about himself or someone else? I want you to notice that the Ethiopian dude, his theological concepts were elemental at best. He's never heard the name Jesus, presumably. He definitely is not sure if Isaiah is talking about himself or something else. But Isaiah is describing a God that's willing to suffer with people. And he's very, very curious. So, so then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with that scripture, in other words, well, if that's where you are, that's where we're starting. That God always seems to meet people where they think he is and then moves them. It's a beautiful humility about how God deals with people and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and, and the eunuch said, see, there's some water. What's presenting me? What's preventing me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and, and he baptized him. And, and when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And, and he went on his way rejoicing. I find that amazing. Like, the eunuch's hunger and thirst for the things of Jesus was enough. He didn't explain to him end times theology. He didn't, he didn't explain to him numerology. He didn't, understand, he didn't have to explain to him gematria. He didn't, he didn't sort of work out now the whole Noah thing. That's actually literal, not a poem, or that's a poem, not literal. He didn't, n none of these things that we can find ourselves distracted and really majoring on. Actually, actually what happened is, is he explained Jesus to him. The guy wanted to be a part. He baptized him, and then there, there he went. There he went. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns that came to Caesarea. Now, as I read this passage, I have questions. I have lots of questions, and so I want to explore those questions with you today. Like, like uh, for instance, is there too much information in this passage? You know, like, why include the fact that this guy's a eunuch several times? Isn't that too much information? If you were that guy, would you want that shared about you? Like, I, I can picture this Ethiopian guy in heaven right now sort of confronting Luke. Like, what were you thinking, bro? You had to tell the whole world that one? You didn't know that this letter would eventually... You know Shane Willard's going to read this passage, and honest, you know he can't read over that. He's going to have to make something out of that. He's got to. Like, would you want the whole world knowing that you're missing part of your anatomy? And why is that important? And why include that in the story? I want to know that. I want to know why he's choosing to worship in Jerusalem. Why does an Ethiopian guy who's missing part of his anatomy ride a horse to Jerusalem? Why include all that? Why not just call him the Ethiopian guy? Or why not, I don't know, bury the Ethiopian? Like, wh why, why an Ethiopian eunuch? And why is he riding a horse to Jerusalem from Ethiopia? That's a long way. Why the scroll of Isaiah? Out of all the scrolls, He's got this thing from Isaiah and he's clutching it. And he's intrigued and he wants to know more about it. Why? Isaiah was a prophet that was calling out the way power was being corrupt and how it was dealing with the poor. This guy's like, what? Why, why? I'll, I'm interested in this. Why? How does the good news apply to an Ethiopian who's missing part of his anatomy? I want to know that. I want to know, is there any reason why I can't be baptized? That was his question. 
The answer is there was a lot of reasons. We'll talk about that in a second. But the question I want to ask us today is, is are we a fence-based or a well-based church? What this passage confronts is that very question. Are we still stuck in the fence-based paradigm? There's all these rules that determine if you're worthy or not. Or there's a well-based paradigm that if we are creating meaningful experiences with God, that you don't need all the fences defining in and out, us and them, clean and unclean, because they are drawn to the water source. Now, let's deal with these questions. First, why is it included that this is a eunuch, and why is it such a big deal? Well, we have to understand that in Philip's day, this was a big deal. Here is Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting, because that's somehow better, may enter the assembly of the Lord. In other words, if it was an accident or four guys held you down and did it to you, it doesn't matter. God's not welcoming you. And it keeps going. No one born of a forbidden marriage nor any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. You know, I was born in 1976. And in my lifetime, I heard a youth pastor try to motivate teenagers to not have premarital sex by using that passage. And, and his point was, if you have premarital sex and you mess up and somebody gets pregnant, it's a shame, but they'll never be welcome into heaven because God clearly says if they're born of a forbidden union, it's... First of all, that's hermeneutical butchery. That's first. S second, th these people then leave the church and then people said, oh, see, they rejected Jesus. No, they didn't. They rejected the image of Jesus presented to them. And that particular image probably should have been rejected. You've got no eunuchs. No people born of a forbidden man. And then he goes, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter into the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. So in the first three verses of Deuteronomy 23, you have more fences than in Jesus's entire ministry. The Old Testament had 613 of them. Jesus had two fence posts. And actually Jesus himself is sort of very confronting to two of those three. Like Jesus, there were certain questions around the circumstances of Jesus's birth, were there not? Absolutely. If you check his genealogy, he's 128th Moabite. So you have Jesus being confronting to these fences, even as they're going along. Nonetheless, this guy is a foreigner eunuch. Can you see how the law would have forbidden a foreigner eunuch? Which leads to this question. Why the prophet Isaiah? What's so special about that guy? Well, on the scroll he was clutching, let me read you a part that didn't get quoted in the book of Acts. This is what it says. This is Isaiah 56, verse 3. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord, who's bound to the Lord, say the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. No foreigner. No, not even that, what? No foreigner. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. In other words, if the eunuchs want in, they can be in. To them I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord. In other words, if the foreigners want in, they can be in. To love the name of the Lord and to be his servants and keep his Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Well, all? Yes. Even the Amalekites? Uh-huh. 
Ammonites, mm, all. All means all. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. The, the sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. So, so in this passage, you have an Ethiopian eunuch. He's a God-fearer. He, he would have been disqualified by the 613 fences. And he's willing to travel days to find the truth. Philip was one of the original 12 who grew up in an Orthodox village called Bethsaida. He would have lived his whole life by 613 fences. He would have very, been very confronted by this. 613 fences is what I've been taught my whole life. But now I'm confronted by a foreigner eunuch who wants it so bad. Will I focus on the fence or on the person? And you know, this event had amazing fruit to it. Uh, today, 65% of Ethiopia identifies as Christians. Here's the thing. Ethiopian Christians are indigenous. They're not moving there. The Ethiopian church today traces their origins back to this one eunuch. In other words, you never know where being someone who's willing to fulfill scripture instead of being right about one verse. You never know what kind of long-lasting fruit that might lead to. Maybe even for a whole nation. If Philip just wanted to be right about one verse, Deuteronomy 23 is very clear. No eunuch will be welcome into the presence of God. And while we're at it, the foreigners as well. And in this passage, you have a foreigner eunuch who found this passage of hope in a scroll of Isaiah, and he's clutching it, and he's saying, is there any reason you can think of where I'm not included in this? And because of Philip's radical encounter with the risen Christ, three and a half years walking with him, he was less concerned with the fence and more concerned with this guy's thirst for the well. Let's say it this way. An entire book about being surprised by how generous God is with people who are thirsty. That's the book of Acts. Uncircumcised Gentiles being filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, Peter's preaching this message, and the Holy Spirit fills the Gentiles. It says, just like he filled us. And even Peter is surprised by this. He's like shocked, and the religious leader's like, Peter, explain yourself, bro. God doesn't act like that. Peter's like, I agree. I'm with you, man. You know, that's what I was taught my whole life, too. God doesn't fill Gentiles. But you know what? Then I saw him do it. And I'm just as flabbergasted as you. But if God saw, filled, saw fit to fill them with the Holy Spirit, just like he did us, who might argue? Remember in Acts 4, it says they were surprised because normal, ordinary, everyday, uneducated people were being used mightily by God. Why is that surprising? Because that had never been done before. In the fence-based structure, you had to be really, 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 really worthy. In the well-based structure that Jesus is bringing in, you just had to want it, man. You just had to be thirsty. You just had to desire it. What a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture. So let's apply this with some language. Like, what do we do? And what does this mean for reimagining what a Christ-centered community could be in our world? Because here's the truth. In Christ-centered communities, you have people like me and like yourself who want to take the scriptures seriously, and we do. But we also want to take our call to love the other person seriously. And sometimes in navigating that, that creates tension. And what we find in the Jesus story 
is that God loves people more than the rules and that we are called to fulfill scripture instead of simply being right about one verse in it. We are called to treat others as we would want to be treated ourselves. So let's put some language around what we find in this story and then wrestle with what that means for our community. I'd say this, one, Jesus doesn't ask, are you worthy? Jesus asks, are you thirsty? And those are two different things. The 613 fences, foreigner eunuchs, right? yeah, yeah. Are, you, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Do you want it? Do, do you want in on what God is up to in our world? See, thirst requires a certain set of things. See, I'd say a lack of thirst equals a lack of teachability. So the root word disciple just means a student, someone who's teachable. Like a lack of thirst is when we lose our teachability. I can tell you for me, I'd rather have a group of 20 agnostic, curious, authentic truth seekers who are asking great questions about the nature of God and love and compassion and how to serve our world better than I'd want a church of 3,000 Christians who aren't teachable. 3,000 people who think, if I haven't thought of it, it can't be true. That would be hell to me. A lack of thirst requires teachability. I would say a lack of thirst, a lack of thirst is a lack of teachability. I would say a lack of thirst is a lack of humility. That part of being a Jesus person is realizing that sometimes we have freedoms that other people aren't ready for yet. And, and a Jesus community says, you know what? Because we're asking who's thirsty instead of who is worthy, I'm willing to submit my liberties for the sake of somebody else and for the sake of the whole thing going forward. I'm willing not to Lord. This is the whole chapter of Romans 14. If you're okay eating food offered to idols, but you know it makes somebody else stumble, it's not that you should quit eating the food. It's just don't do it in front of them. See, a thirsty culture is a teachable culture. A thirsty culture is a humble culture. I would say a lack of thirst is a lack of responsibility. Way back in Genesis, even before sin entered the story, human beings found part of their purpose in taking responsibility for their world. So the opposite of that would be blaming. That once we start blaming others or blaming our fathers or blaming our mothers or blaming our leaders or blaming, that no, it is not their fault. At some point we have to take responsibility. A thirsty culture is a teachable culture. A thirsty culture is a humble culture. People are willing to submit their liberty to the higher moral ethic of love. A, 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 a thirsty culture is a responsible culture. Ones that take responsibility for their actions. I would say this, a lack of thirst leads to ambivalence. Actually, a thirsty culture is a passionate culture about what we're up to and what God is up to in our world, saying yes to the infinite possibilities that it brings. So, so what is a thirsty culture? It's a teachable culture. It's a humble culture. It's a responsible culture. And, and it's a passionate culture about the infinite possibilities in our world. Once we lose our teachability or our humility, or we blame, or we become ambivalent. At that point, we've lost our thirst. And here's the thing, is once we lose our thirst, we will tend to default back to the worth question. Are we keeping all the rules? When actually the better story is more profound than that. Let, let's say it this way. The overuse of fences is not necessary if there's a well-stocked well. There's 613 fences in the Old Testament. Jesus had two fence posts. By Acts 15, there was four. Food sacrificed to idols, blood, meat of strangled animals, and sexual immorality. As they were journeying from a fence-based ministry to a well-based ministry, they kept losing their fences. Which leads me to a few questions. One, are, are we gravitating to the center regardless of the fencing? 
In other words, if your direction is heading to the center anyway, it doesn't matter how far away the fence is. It doesn't matter how close you are to the fence. Like, like Christianity is that it's least compelling when we're trying to get away with the most. Like it's, it's the least compelling. Like, like for instance, there are some fences that are really important, like don't kill each other. But the truth of it is, is that if you need the Bible to tell you not to kill somebody, there is a far more profound way to live, right? I, I, was, I was watching a debate one time between a Christian and, a, and an atheist, and, and the Christian said, um, well, if you don't have the Bible, what keeps you from raping and murdering everybody you want? And the atheist said, nothing. I've raped and murdered everybody I want. That number just happens to be zero. And if you need the Bible to keep you from raping and murdering people, you're a lunatic. And that's true. The truth of it is, is that if we're journeying to the well, the fence actually doesn't matter as much. Let's say it this way. Are we more focused on direction instead of distance? A well-based ministry is more focused on the direction of someone's shoulders instead of how far they are from the well. A fence-based ministry says, well, have you done this? Have you jumped over that? Have you jumped over that? Are you, how far are you from the well? A, 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 a well-based ministry says, well, no, 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 no. They're, they're heading the right direction. Like I was, I was doing a volunteer night at a, at a, at a church only for team members. And um, th- some of them were telling their God stories, you know, in less than a minute. And this guy gets up and says, he says, he says, hello, everybody. I'm an atheist. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And he went, he went but I'm, I was a lonely atheist. And they told me that I could come here and belong without having to believe in God. And, you know, you guys have been the kindest people. You know, by the third week, you had me greeting on the door. My job is to be kind to people coming in and show them where the bathrooms are. He says, this church has an atheist door greeter. And he said, you know what? Because of your kindness, I want to tell you what happened. Tonight, I made a decision to step back and consider God might be real. Well, the place erupted. Why? Because when an atheist is standing back going, God might be real, that is a yes worth celebrating. Our job as a Christ-centered community is not to put up barriers between that man and the fence. It is to open the fences to lead people to the well. It is to say, hey, we are here to create meaningful experiences with God for you and to facilitate your next yes. And we are focused on the direction of your shoulders, not the distance from it. And when we facilitate everybody's next profound yes, be it small or big, eventually we're moving to the well. Let's say it this way. Fences matter less when we are focused on moving towards the center. Or or we can say it another way. In, In old communities, the whole village centered around the well. What if we built wells instead of fences? What if we did that? See, wells represent thirst, life, provision, prosperity, abundance. Let's say it this way. Jesus was a fence destroyer and a well inviter. And as Jesus' people, we should be fence destroyers and well inviters. See, Philip ignores all the fences and just keeps talking about the well. Maybe we could say it this way. We don't need any fence that doesn't lead us to the well. We don't need any fence that doesn't lead us to the well. Because the truth of it is, you've got to have some fences. Like, you have to. But the fences should be a carom towards the well, not a hurdle to jump over to get to the well. One of the Hebrew definitions of hell is a boundaryless place. In other words, if you don't know what to say no to, you'll have no idea what to say yes to. That's true. The fences, though, should be moving us 
to our next yes. As a Christ-centered community, we should be paying attention to people's shoulders. Are they facing the right? Are they heading towards the center? And then facilitating their next yes. Maybe we could say it this way. If fences make it more difficult to get to the well, then the fence misses the point. Let, let me read you one more thing that Jesus said. This is in John chapter 7. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who's thirsty come after me. He goes on to say, if you just believe, the full measure of the Spirit will come out of you like gushes of living water. The, the feast they're talking about is the Feast of Tabernacles, which this is a caricature, but for seven days, everybody comes to Jerusalem and lives in tents. Why? To remind themselves of where God interjected himself into their story. And actually, they say in a loud voice on that day, my father was a wandering Aramean. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 26. In other words, they have a ritual that reminds themselves that if God had not interceded in their life, their father was a homeless refugee slave. And here's why that's important. If we ever lose sight with where we were when God interjected himself into our story, then we will lose sight in our role in their story. Jesus stands up on the temple steps in perhaps the most fence-based ministry ever and says, actually, I'm not worried about are you worthy. I'm asking, are you thirsty? And he says, let anyone who is thirsty. Can you imagine the Q&A at that one? What if they're eunuchs? Yep, them too. Moabites? I'm sort of part Moabite. Yep, them too. Foreigner? Yes. If anyone is thirsty, let him come after me. As we reimagine what a Christ-centered community could be, may we move from a fence-based paradigm to a well-based one. More concerned with do people want it? Are they thirsty? Than to keep all the rules determining are they worthy? Now, great sermons are not meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with for applications. Let's wrestle a little bit. One, when is the last time I saw God do something that made me uncomfortable? Like I saw it and I thought, I didn't think God acted like that. I didn't think God did things in that way. Because if we don't see that enough, I don't think we're paying attention because God is always expanding the boundaries. You can't put the new thing God's doing in the old framework. God's doing something new and that's worth celebrating. When's the last time I saw God do something and I was like amazed that it happened that way? Uh, two, have I honored right, wrong, in, out, clean, and unclean over are you hungry and thirsty paradigm? Have I just created another system of in and out and fences? Um, three, am I currently blaming right now? Am I a blamer? Am I blaming instead of taking responsibility? Four, am I teachable? Or have I lost my teachable spirit? Am I still, am I still amazed when I wake up in the morning of the wonder of the infinite things that I still have yet to explore about God? Um, five, am I flexible? I mean, if God saw fit to fill them with the Holy Spirit, who am I to argue? Am I flexible? Uh, uh, six, are we building deeper wells or higher fences? Are we building deeper wells or higher fences? So, my brothers and sisters, may we be a thirsty community, teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about the infinite possibilities God has for our world. May we ask the question, are you thirsty, instead of are you worthy? 
May we focus more on people's direction than their distance and facilitate everyone's next yes towards the infinite possibilities God has for their life. May we move them one step closer to the well.